0: Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to join me again back in the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians. And if you find the book of 1 Corinthians, it is a letter in the New Testament immediately following the book of Romans. I want you to find the third chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter Three, As we begin a brand new sermon series this morning, walking through this book that we entered a few months ago, we paused to spend some time in and around the resurrection story. And for many of you who may be guests, we now re-enter into our normal preaching pattern where we walk through a book, verse by verse, line by line, word by word, hoping that we can milk God's word of all of its nutrients for you and for me. I want to begin a new series simply entitled Follow the leader. You learned this game as a child. If you travel to Ludington, Michigan, and you go to the Ludington City Park, you will find a bronze statue of children playing follow the leader. The man who donated the money for the statue wanted to do so to artistically say that children are our future. And the statue is a series of stones with the statue of children on them. And one stone is left empty so that a child or even an adult, a passerby, can jump in and be a part of the game. You know how the game works, right? Somebody's designated as the leader. When you play, follow the leader. And you do what they do. If they skip, you skip. They hop, you hop, they jump, you jump. They turn left, you turn left. They turn right, you turn right. Well, sometimes. This week after all of our Easter activities had completed and your staff and I spent some time debriefing after Tuesday's long staff meeting day, I drove to my home state to see my grandfather, I hadn't seen him in several months, and he is uh, in his mid-90s, and I'm trying to see him more consistently over the next few months and hopefully years as the Lord would lead. Uh, but uh, I had one of those priceless evenings where we sat around the dinner table at his kitchen table where I sat as a little boy and adored him. And he's a master storyteller. He's hilarious, he has a great sense of humor, and he was telling me a story. He was born and raised on a dirt farm in nowhere Mississippi, not far from Newton, Mississippi, which is not far from Meridian, Mississippi. But after the Depression, there was no money and no industry. And so as a very young man, he migrated to Birmingham, which is the Pittsburgh of the South. Birmingham, Alabama is named after Birmingham, England, because Birmingham, England is the steel production center of England. And Birmingham, Alabama, is where a great deal of steel is produced. That's why it's called the Pittsburgh of the South. And so both of my grandfathers worked in the steel industry in and around uh, this, the city of Birmingham. So my grandfather went there to get a job because he had a brother who had gone before him and he needed a driver's license. They never had a car. He grew up riding a wagon to church. He was born in a home like many of your grandparents. But he knew he needed a driver's license, so he thought he knew how to drive, so he signed up for a driver's test. Word there, know that you know how to drive before you sign up for the test. He said he was on 9th Street in downtown Birmingham, and the gentleman from the DMV office was sitting in the passenger side, And he said to him, Mr. Horton, up here at this light, turn left. Well, my grandfather thought he was giving the orders. So when he got to the light, regardless of the fact that it was red, he turned left. (laughs) Almost caused a wreck. The man said some choice words, made him stop the car, got out, and said, I'm going to walk back to my office. You come back when you learn to drive. He said, sir, you told me to turn left. He said, I did, but assuming that you knew you couldn't do it until the light turned green, thus I'm not getting back in the car with you until you learn to drive. Don't always do what somebody tells you to do, literally. Every parent in the room, when challenging your children's choices with their friends, has said, well, if they jump off a cliff, are you going to jump off a cliff? Some of you are raising knuckleheads who would jump off the cliff. We all know that follow the leader has its limitations. When I began the journey of 1 Corinthians with you several weeks ago, and if you're new to Church at the Mail, all these sermons are archived. They're available on our website. But I, when I began that journey with you, I told you that one of the choice, one of the reasons we chose this passage, this text, this letter, is because Paul is dealing in a counterculture with the church. Corinth could not be more worldly. It was an incredibly sinful place. And yet the world is not foreign to groups, movements, organizations. And so I said to you for several weeks when we were in chapter 1, in a world of groups, organizations, movements, and agendas, it has never been more important for the church to be the church, to be distinctive. To not try to be the culture, but to try to influence the culture. To be counterculture when the culture is sinful. To love the culture, but to love the culture with Christ. To be convictional. I would say in beginning this new series that we also know we live in a world of failed leadership. We see failed leadership all around us. And when the world is filled with failed leadership, leadership in the church should look different. Now you may say, oh, well this is gonna be serious for leaders, pastor, I'm, I'm not a leader. If God has blessed you with a wife, you're a leader. If God has given you children, you're a leader. If God has ever burned your heart for somebody that you know who needs Christ, guess what you are? A leader. Spiritual leadership matters. Why does it matter in our lives? I can't tell you how many times someone will come up to me and say, Pastor, I have a cousin, I have a sister, I have a friend, I have an adult child, and they're living in another community. And I know they're a Christian. I know they have a deep faith. I I, I genuinely believe that they are in a right relationship with Christ. But, oh, they're struggling so much. And I just wish they could find a church like ours in their community. I just wish they would get connected to a group of believers in their community, the way I'm connected with our community. In layman's terms, this is what they're saying. They're saying, my loved one, my friend, my cousin, my adult child, my loved one who I'm burdened for has Jesus, but does not have solid, sound, spiritual leadership in their life, and they're suffering for it. And that's actually really true. I mean, second only to the decision to give your life to Christ, if you ask me to narrow down a handful of very important decisions that a Christian makes, one of those that has to be at the top of the list is that a man or a woman who is serious about finding and following Jesus is also serious about finding and following healthy spiritual leadership. Why? Well, really quick, kind of a theological foundation for this series. One, we need it. We must have spiritual leadership. We must have spiritual leadership in our life. We have to have it. Two, we are called to submit to it. In in other words, in our life, we know that we're called to submit to spiritual leadership and to be a blessing to those who are given it, to hold them accountable, but then not to esteem them to emulate them, to follow their lives. Now, not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews probably captures this best when he says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So the writer of Hebrews, and we'll see today, the writer of First Corinthians, Paul is saying, it matters that you care whose leadership you're following how you relate to them, how you view them, and how you emulate their life. A little bit later in this same chapter in Hebrews 13, the writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. But not because they're special, not because they're smarter or they're more spiritual, they have a direct line to heaven. That's never mentioned in the scripture. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's some pretty strong language for people in ministry. God is saying through the writer of Hebrews, anybody in ministry When you lead a ministry, when you pastor a church, to some degree, when you lead people spiritually as a small group leader, when you minister to students in the student ministry, when you love on children, you you, you will provide a certain amount of supervision and structure. And it is about relaying good information to them, but it's more than that. You are positioning and watching over their souls, and you'll be held accountable for that. Now, it's not something to be afraid of, But it's also not something to be flippant about. And then the writer says, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage. One of the reasons I love exposition, which is the preaching of God's word, verse by verse, line by line, book by book, is because it makes all of us deal with subjects that we may or may not want to deal with. I want you to know that I'm not preaching this series in reaction to you. In other words, you might say, well, is he doing this series because he doesn't think we're following him well? No, it's more simple than that. I'm doing the series because it's the next chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to give you the whole counsel of God's word for as long as I have the opportunity of being your pastor. But I would say, be remiss if I didn't say, you actually live this verse out very well. You are a joy to lead. You are a loving precious group of people. You're not perfect people. You don't have a perfect pastor. But you are a loving, precious people. At the end of our first service this morning, I met not one, not two, not three, but four first-time families, all of whom did not find us online, though we appreciate all that we do with media. They did not find us via, via a billboard. They did not find us because they found me or a book I've written or a podcast I've recorded they were friends with someone who was kind to them, and that person said, why don't you come and bring your family and worship with us? That is more magnetic than any method, program, strategy that we could ever orchestrate. And so I would say that part of me is enjoying this series because I enjoy the fruit of leading a people who are a joy. But this might not be your last church. We have a ton of students in this room. We have a lot of college students. We have a lot of young men and young women who may or may not be in Spartanburg the rest of your life. Some of you want to live here until you die here and you want me to do your funeral. I'd be honored to do so if I can. But many of you won't. Your life will take you to other places You will be a part of other churches. There will be other ministries that you find. And so it's important, especially for those of you who are young, who may very well be highly involved in future churches, to understand why spiritual leadership matters and how to go from a faulty view of spiritual leadership to a faithful view of spiritual leadership. If you'll allow me, that's simply our title. From an unfaithful way from a faulty way, from a flawed way, to a faithful way of leadership. Let me show you from God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it and even now you are not yet ready. Verse 3, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? It's a rhetorical question. Notice the question mark. Verse 4, for when one says, oh, I follow Paul, and another says, no, 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 I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And we'll close with verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. How do you relate to spiritual leadership faithfully? Paul first describes in this passage his past practice. I think it's important to understand from which Paul is coming from. Now, we have no shortage of babies here at Church at the Mill. Have you noticed? They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And when a baby is born, one of the first things that needs to happen is they need to nurse. And not to be critical of babies, but honestly, they don't do much for a while. In fact, they really only do three things. One of them's kind of gross. I won't mention it. But the other two are eating and sleeping. Some of you are like, I'm married to a baby. That's what my husband does. They eat and sleep. Now, what pediatricians would tell you, and I certainly am not an expert in childhood development, but what pediatricians would tell you is that one of the reasons that babies really only do the other gross thing, but then they eat and sleep, is because their bodies are growing at an incredibly rapid rate. The growth from the day of your birth to your first birthday is exponentially more than any other year in your life. I, I, I mean, it is amazing to hold an infant, but they feel incredibly delicate. I, I know I was never comfortable with that, but hand me a one-year-old, and you drop them, they bounce right back up in your arms. <laughs> Their fat rolls have fat rolls. When you see the difference between a newborn and a baby boy or girl who is one, it is fascinating. And it's because for about 12 months they've been doing the gross thing and eating and sleeping. And the first thing that babies eat is not food. It's, of course, milk. They nurse within moments of their birth now, or at least it's good for them to. And whether it's mother's milk or a formula, their diet is primarily liquid exclusively liquid initially, but then primarily liquid for a long time. And we all know why. Their digestive tract cannot handle solid food. Their mouths cannot handle solid food. They don't come into this world with any teeth or even the ability to chew or digest food. It would not only risk the baby's life, it would certainly choke them and make them ill if you tried to force solid food into the mouth of an infant. Well, this is not new. This isn't something that modernity has figured out. This has been around since babies have been around. Since Eve had the first children, this has been very normal. So Paul and other New Testament writers take this real obvious illustration and say, this is also the way it works spiritually. When you get saved, you are not a mature Christian. Let that sink in for just a moment because some of you are awful impatient with baby Christians. When you get saved, the Bible categorizes you as a babe in Christ because the Bible uses birth terms to talk about salvation. Jesus coined it Nicodemus comes to Jesus, how must I enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born. Again, Nicodemus takes it literally. It doesn't make any sense. He understands it's not physically possible. And Jesus then clarifies, Nicodemus, I'm not talking about your physical birth. I'm talking about your spiritual birth. Well, that in and of itself tells us that when you start out in Jesus spiritually, you are the equivalent to when someone starts out after their birth physically. When people start out physically, they can do nothing for themselves. They require lots of supervision. And the most important thing you can give them, second only to the air that they breathe in their lungs, is the nutrition of their mother's milk or the formula provided for them. So Paul says to the Corinthian believers, when I first got there, you didn't know nothing. Some of you were temple prostitutes who literally worshipped a pagan god by having sex with congregation members. Others of you were wealthy businessmen. Some of you were former Roman soldiers. Some of you were Jews who were being delivered out of the legalistic version of Judaism that Paul encountered in the first century. You didn't know anything about the gospel. So when I gave you Christ and I preached to you and God gave you the ability to be saved and saved you, I then gave you milk. That's exactly what verse 1 says. Look at verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. In other words, I couldn't address you as spiritually mature people, but as people of the flesh, you had professed Christ, but you still had a lot of those habits, a lot of those hangups, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, how do you address an infant? Look at verse two. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Now, Paul does this a lot. Later, we'll get to it in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I fought like a child. I reasoned like a child. No criticism of children. Paul's saying this is obvious, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He's trying to say maturity happens. A little bit later in 1 Corinthians, he says it this way, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Now, you may think, does Paul have something against children? Don't we love the purity of children? Yes, we do, and so does Paul. Look what he says. Be infants in evil. In other words, don't be experienced and seasoned in evil. Be pure and innocent in evil. Every baby on this campus today has a sin nature, but by the fact that they've been on earth less than the rest of us, they've sinned less. They know less about sin. There is a purity and a naivety about children that we adore. We let them get away with saying stuff that we can't say because we understand they don't understand the nuances of language or the implications of what it is they mean. So Paul says, when you see the innocence of children, you be that way in relationship to evil. But in your thinking, don't be childish. Be mature. Paul says, this is what I had to do For you, by way of application. Be patient with people when they first come to know Jesus. Nobody gets saved and becomes spiritually mature on the same day. Let me ask you a question. If you've been walking with the Lord now for a year, five years, ten years, and you would say, today, Pastor, I'm not perfect, but there's this faithfulness in my life. To the best of my ability, I'm trying to follow Jesus. Wouldn't you say you're a different person than the day you got saved? Of course, you are. The Holy Spirit, time, maturity, experience, your failures, your successes, all are used by God to shape you into the woman of God that you are, into the man of God that you are. Give people the liberty to go through that. Now, I don't in any way mean that we water down what sin is, that we don't ask people to repent, that we don't demand that God wants us to live a life differently. I would say to the brand new Christian, if there's something in your life that is obvious, obviously disobedient to God's word, then by God's authority and his grace, you have to turn from that. I, I understand that. But, but, we, but we know that the Christian life is minutes lived into hours and hours into days and days into weeks and weeks into months and months into years. And that day-by-day journey of walking with the Lord leads to that maturity. Don't be afraid to give them milk when they need milk. This is what Paul did. The writer of Hebrews, though, points out something about this. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles, the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now, he would go on to say, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But, a, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There's two people that are on liquid diets in their world today. Babies and the sick. When you have to have surgery, you fast because they want your GI tract empty. And when you recover from surgery, often the first meal is something soft or liquid. When the old are dying and end up on their deathbed, the last things they consumed are usually not solid foods. They are liquid forms of nutrition and it may even result in some form of a feeding tube because they're unable to chew and to begin the digestive process down their throat and into their stomach. And so the only two people that are living off of a liquid diet, barring someone who's doing a fast for health reasons, are infants and those who are not well, who are sick, recovering from sickness, are dying. Everybody else knows the value of solid food, which leads to Paul's second description. He described the past practice of giving milk to baby Christians, but now he describes the present problem. They should be eating meat, but they're not. Look at the passage, beginning in verse 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. And by the way, that even now is emphasized in the original language. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way. Now how they're behaving, look at verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, this is fascinating because we begin to understand some terms here. He says you ought to be acting spiritual, but you're acting as a human. Why would he say human? Is it a sin to be a human? No, it's not a sin to be a human. In fact, creating humanity gave God great pleasure. He created us in his image. We don't believe the scripture bears out that we're highly evolved animals, that we're made differently, that we have a soul and a consciousness and a moral compass and a desire to connect with our creator God. The animal kingdom is a blessing to us, but animals are different than humans. It is not a bad thing to be a human. Jesus came to redeem humanity. We see a very godless, worldly agenda that almost resents Humanity, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible celebrates the growth of mankind, the having of children. The propagation of population is a biblical thing. People are for God's glory. They're never to be resented, and population control is a lie from hell that smells of smoke. We celebrate humanity. So what does Paul mean when he says you're acting human? Well, a human without the Spirit of God will always end up acting counter to the Lord. Left to our own demise, we don't drift toward the Lord, we drift away from the Lord. In fact, drifting never leads people to become more moral. Drifting leads people to become more immoral. If we were, as a godless worldview would promote, nothing more than highly evolved creatures from the animal kingdom. And if morality and spirituality are just the result of evolutionary development, why are we still wicked? Why are there still wars? Why is there still evil and still sensuality and still flesh? It's because we know that's not true. We are not highly evolved animals who have developed some sense of spiritual conscious above the animal kingdom. No, we are human beings created in the image of God and sin has severed that relationship meaning our only hope to overcome sin and to live a life that fulfills the purpose of God in our life, which is to bring him glory, is through a right relationship with God, which comes when the Spirit of God lives in us. Now, when the Spirit of God comes to live in us, then we walk according to the Spirit and not according to the human. And this is why Paul says, you're acting human, even though you're supposed to be Spiritual. Now, there's all kinds of ways you can dissect 1 Corinthians. We're going to do this over the next few months. We can't cover it all today. But inside of Corinthians, Paul deals with people in categories like no other book in the New Testament. There's a lot of ways to divide them, but let me show you the four Corinthians very quickly. First is the natural man. Paul uses that term to describe a lost person, someone without Christ. Natural man. Then there's the carnal weak man. This is a baby in Christ. They've come to faith, but they're not strong spiritually. Someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I've been struggling with alcoholism. I'm giving my life to Jesus. I'm not sending them to the bar to evangelize. They're not ready, they're not ready. The third one is someone who is carnal yet willful in their rebellion. This is someone who professes Christ has even bore fruit of showing Christianity in their life, but right now they're in sin and they're in a bad place. They ought to be mature, but they're not. And then finally is the spiritual man. Paul would use this as a reference to a woman or a man whose life is not perfect, but it is characterized by strength, consistency, faithfulness. Now, now this is where we get into the present problem. Paul's saying, you guys are fighting over who's your preacher. Some of you are saying, we're in the Paul camp. We worship at the personality of Paul. Others are saying, no, 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 no. We got our love and our grace from Apollos. He's our man. If you're not following Apollos, you're not connected to the king. And yet I still find that today. I hear people say, well, I can only worship with this kind of music. Or I, 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 if you're not in our church, you're missing out. Or I heard this church was dead and that church. Oh, well, this person, it's his books that I must read. I need to get a word from her or from him or from that. And the problem is, Paul was looking at this from a distance. You know, he's writing this, not in Corinth, saying, wait, wait a minute now. You, you, you guys are still practicing jealousy and strife. You know what's interesting about jealousy and strife? They keep coming up when Christians are misbehaving. Now, we kind of know what misbehavior looks like in the bad stuff. I mean, think about what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says this in the book of Romans. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Now, listen to these sins. I don't know about you. I've never seen these at church. Orgies or drunkenness. Never seen those at church. Not in sexual immorality or sensuality. I know that goes on in the church, but it's usually never spoken about. It's in people's personal lives. But then quarreling and jealousy. I've seen that in the lobby. We, we kind of camp on, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I I'm not attended an orgy in a while, and I don't get drunk anymore. I love my wife. I must be good. But then there's quarreling and jealousy among Christians. There, there's another reference. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. Mom and Dad, let me translate that. When I get home. Things are not going to go well if this is not done. You're not going to be happy, and I'm not going to be happy. When I'm not happy, you're definitely not going to be happy. This is what Paul's saying. That perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Paul is saying the world's full of this. Let me tell you what this is. Let me read the sentence again. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. This is reality TV. This is what gets people's attention. This is what we watch reality TV for. Not that I'm saying we should. This is what draws us in. We'd love to see this on display. This is the sinful nature on display, and we find it intriguing because it strikes a chord with our own sinful nature. The stuff we wouldn't say or we wouldn't let our children say, we'll watch a reality TV show that is literally built on it. That's for another sermon. I would just say, how do you reach a lost world for Christ if this is what the church looks like? And, of course, when Paul is dealing with the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians, the contrast of the fruit of the Spirit are idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. This is the point. You and I are in a very sweet time at Church at the Mill. I know that we preach now to a broader audience than our local church. But as a shepherd, my first loyalty is to you. And I would just say it's a sweet time. Our church is unified. God has been good to us. There is momentum. But how do you think the enemy will attack that? The enemy's not going to change our doctrine. I'm not moving off his word. The the, the enemy's probably not going to have our building be shelled by an invading army. The enemy, if he wanted to attack what God is doing in our church, he would start with jealousy, strife, disorder, enmity in your heart and in my heart. And when we do that, you can forget reaching anybody because we've lost our witness. And the present problem then must need a solution. And this is where I will close. Paul says, you have to have the proper perspective. You need to see things the right way. When I meet seasoned, mature, kind, consistent Christians, and you sit down and talk with them, their life has been filled with spiritual leaders. They have sat under many pastors. They've been a part of many small groups. They've read many books, what you don't find is personality worship. Rather, what you find is the discernment in a woman's heart or a man's heart to be able to glean God's word from God's servants without becoming overly enamored or in an unhealthy disloyal or loyal situation or relationship to someone who almost becomes their only link to God. This is why Paul asked the question, and I'll close the passage with the last paragraph, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Write this down. You need to have a proper perspective of ministers. What are ministers? What are the men who are called to preach God's word to the church? What are men and women who are called to lead you, to share God's word with you? What are they? Biblically speaking, there are a lot of things. Shepherds, elders, bishops, overseers. The New Testament was written by apostles. They're all with Jesus now. But at the end of the day, at the core, they're servants. That's what Apollos was. He was just a servant. Acts tells us about him. Acts says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So the Apollos was a good guy. Paul's a good guy. But Paul ultimately says, Apollos and Paul, they're just servants. If I ask you about a great restaurant, and I go, hey, you ever eaten at such and such or so and so? I'm thinking about taking Laurel out. She's been behaving lately. I'm going to take her out. <laughs> and I ask you about it. If you say anything good or bad, it's about the food. That's why I go to a restaurant. I mean, the decor is nice. The ambiance is meaningful. I'm going to eat. Okay? I don't go to dance. I, 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 I'm not going to meet people, though I enjoy talking to people. I'm going to eat. That's what I do at a restaurant, okay? I'm going to eat. So if I ask you about a restaurant, you're going to assume and you're going to say, oh, the food's great. You should go. You're not going to talk to me about your waiter or your waitress unless it's really bad. And then you may say, food's good. Uh, The waitstaff is iffy or sometimes the food is slow, but it's really good because you know I'm asking about the food. The reason you wouldn't go on and on about the waitress is because number one, You can't assume I'm going to walk in on the very night that that waitress is assigned to serve us. Waitresses and waiters come and go. It is a fluid career. You're talking about the food because the food is what you go for. Why in the world do we elevate or beat down the waiters and the waitresses in the kingdom and not talk about the food? We want to serve up the food. We want to give people the word of God that's not milk, that's solid. And so ministers need to be servants, not celebrities. Servants, not celebrities. And by the way, this is why the future of our church will involve many more campuses, but all of them will be led by a man who will preach. You may or may not know this. If you're watching on live stream, you know this. The internet crashed this morning, an internal hardware issue. We have no idea. It went down. They'll fix it. We have really smart people. But I'm so thankful that that doesn't mean Woodruff couldn't worship today. They got a preacher. Screens don't pastor people. People do. And how do we raise up the next generation of preachers if we don't give them pulpits to preach in? And how do we not adore personalities if we keep pushing the same face in every form of media? And so they're servants. Paul says we're just servants which gives you the proper perspective of maturity. How does maturity work? Has anybody thought about putting on a bathing suit? It's beautiful this week. I wore shorts for the first time this weekend. Me and Laura both looked at our legs, and we were ashamed. (laughs) I know that when I fill out a census or a report, it says, you know, ethnicity, I check white. There should be a really white box. (laughs) Like, I'm white, white. And hers as white. as I don't tan. I have a red hue I get to, but I don't tan. And I don't care what my legs look like anymore. I really never needed to. But the point is, they are white. And it caused me to think about the fact that we're going into bathing suit season, and some of you are stressed and worried about it. And invariably, some of you may go, I, I need to lose a few. My handles are a little big. I need to lose a few. I'm going to work on my core. How do you work on your core Well, heaven forbid you do anything, but you join the gym. You may not go, but you'll join the gym. (laughs) Then you got to go get some cute workout clothes. (laughs) Got to figure out which water bottle is the best. (laughs) Then you go and then you hire a trainer. And the trainer tells you, if you don't do what I tell you to do in between our sessions, it doesn't matter what I tell you to do. You go, you're right, I'm with you. Then you post a picture with your trainer. (laughs) And then you look the exact same in your bathing suit you did last summer. Do you know why? Because you really can't build your abs. That's not what you do. Even if you do the work, if you have a full core regimen where you do all the setups you can do and all the different movements that you can strengthen your abs and tighten up and firm and do the things you need to do, you really never build a muscle. I used to be into powerlifting. I never built a muscle in a weight room. You actually tear it down. You tear it down, and then God has programmed your body to build it back. You know who grows people spiritually? God. I've never grown anybody. The Apostle Paul said, I did not grow you in Christ. That's literally what he says. Look at verse 6. He says these words, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So then you ask the question, I want to find a place where I am growing spiritually, not where I like the guy. I want to find a place that is challenging me to be grown spiritually by the Lord and much is made about Christ And less about the personality of the leader, which leads to the final perspective. You have to have the right perspective of ministry in general. How does ministry work? Well, ministry works the way the Bible says it works. Look at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Notice in verse 9 how many times the word God is said. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Ministry belongs to the Lord. It is His work. He is the reason we preach, we sing, we lead, we disciple, we minister. It's about Him. And by the way, if you ever feel called to ministry, the greatest way to never burn out is to make it about Him. Because when you make it about Him, His river of love flows through you into others like you cannot. Imagine. But if you make it about you, you'll find yourself exhausted and burned out because you'll never measure up to the standards you set for yourselves or the standards you perceive others to have set for you. Now, how do you apply this message? Real simple. If you want to follow the leader faithfully, that's what you want. Find faithful leaders and follow them. Some of you are raising little ones. When they're adults, can they say, my mama led me spiritually. My dad led me spiritually. Some of you are going to go to work tomorrow and it's a God-awful environment. The language is filthy and there are not many people in your workplace that are honoring the Lord. That means when you step in, when you clock in, when you punch in, when you walk in, you are a minister on call. You can't save those people, nor can you grow the ones that are saved. But you can plant and you can water and leave the results up to God. It doesn't make any difference to me if you're a manager or a machinist. If you're a surgeon or a coach, if you are a nurse or a caterer. If you keep children for someone else or you keep your own children because no one else will. You have been given potential to lead spiritually and to choose carefully whose spiritual leadership you are under. Handle it faithfully. It matters. And then we will follow the leader well.